You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. Uh, We're going to be looking at verse 34 uh, on through to chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, You should know this, the uh, chapter and verse markings in your Bible were not added until the 16th century, so they're not inspired, and sometimes the people who divided up the chapters got it wrong. Chapter 9, verse 1 should be at the end of chapter 8 because it's Jesus is is finishing off his discourse about discipleship with chapter 9, verse 1. Just wanted to let you all know that. Uh, But tonight we're going to consider once again the Lord Jesus Christ's call to discipleship. Last week we looked exclusively at verse 34, and and, and we saw what Jesus says it means to be a disciple, or what it means to be a Christian. And we learned in looking at verse 34, that to be a disciple, one must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. But tonight, our passage answers a question for us, actually, and it's the question of why. Right? This is one of our favorite questions to ask, isn't it? Why? Or why should I? Jesus demands that any who would become Christians, anyone who would follow him, be his disciple, must give up everything. Must deny who they are. Must be willing to take on the shame of the world and die. And must submit to him completely in everything. Now that's a tall order. There's no getting around it. Jesus Jesus demands for any would-be disciple is very They are very high. And so our natural response to high demands in any realm of our life is, why should I? Right? Isn't that what we do? Um, If something stands to cost us, we naturally do a cost-benefit analysis in our head, even if you don't think about it that way. You do that. Right? When considering marriage, you weigh the potential difficulties of living with another sinner against the benefit of gaining a helpmate and friend for life. I'm looking at you, Keely and Steve. You sure? Anyway, um, when consider they're both pretty all right. I think they're going to be fine. Um, when you consider buying a car, right, you, you weigh the price and payments against the usefulness and capabilities of the car, right? E- even when we buy one brand versus another at the grocery store, we weigh the benefits and quality over the one against the cost, right? We do, we do this all the time. So knowing that people often do these kinds of analyses and knowing that he's just said a very hard thing, the Lord Jesus now begins to tell us exactly why we should follow him. He begins to tell us why we should take up our cross, deny ourselves, and and follow him. You could say that Jesus here in our text this evening gives us the true cost-benefit analysis of discipleship. And in doing so, he gives us the reason for why we must become his disciple. So, in light of that, for this sermon, what what, what I've done is I've tried to divide the text into three major headings so that we can think through it, right? Like the old Puritan style, three headings, right? The first heading is the call to discipleship in verse 34. I'm going to recap what we learned last week. The second heading in verses 35 through 38 is going to be Jesus' argument for why you should accept his call. And the third heading, chapter 9, verse 1 is reassurance to disciples that they have made the right choice. And may God bless the preaching of his word this evening. And just real quick, if any of you this evening are on the fence about becoming a Christian, right? I know we have visitors, and I don't know you all very well. 
If any of you are on the fence of becoming a Christian, um, I pray that you'll listen well to Jesus Christ in this text and, and be wise and follow him. And for those of us who already belong to Christ, um, may you be reminded and encouraged that indeed you have made the best decision of your life whenever you answered the call to become a disciple. Right, so th th I want you to bear that in mind. But if you would now, as a sign of respect for our God, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 34, through chapter 9, verse 1. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God of all truth, we come before you now and humbly ask that you would have mercy upon us and bless us through the preaching of your word. We're often foolish, but your word makes us wise. So we ask that you would be pleased to give us wisdom this evening. Remind us of what matters. Remind us of the truth. Speak to us now, we pray. By your Holy Spirit, enlighten our minds and open our eyes, ears, and hearts to receive your word and understand it. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now let's go ahead and begin with our first heading. Let's jump in. The call to discipleship. In verse 34, our Lord called the crowd to himself with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. As I said last week, here the Lord Jesus lays down the unchangeable law of discipleship. And it applies equally to everyone. It's to his, the twelve who are standing there and to the crowd of strangers. This is equally applicable to everyone. And he says that if you want to be his disciple, if you want to become a Christian, three things are required of you. First, you must deny yourself. That is, you must disassociate from yourself. You must come to the end of yourself and make a clean break with you, right? Just like Peter denied Jesus, you are to deny yourself. It's the same word being used here. Peter denied knowing Christ. He said that he had no dealings with Jesus. In a moment of weakness, Peter said that he wanted nothing to do with the Lord Jesus. And Jesus says that you must view yourself like that. You must come to a point where you are finished with yourself and you no longer want to associate with who you've been. Right? So to deny yourself means to repent. You make a break with how you've been living. You recognize it as sinful and you renounce it. And you lay down your life and endeavor to give up your sinful ways. More than, more than that, you lay down everything that you are. Again, you're denying yourself. So you relinquish control over your life and you recognize it's not your life anymore. And you give up all the plans that you had made for yourself. And, rather, and instead you submit everything that you are, every thought that you have, Every word that you say, every breath, every ounce of yourself to Jesus. You deny yourself, and in doing so, you give yourself to Christ. 
Secondly, Jesus says you must take up your cross. That is, you must be willing to die. You are so committed to the Lord Jesus that you would rather die than deny him. You identify so closely with Christ that if you must pick between martyrdom and life, you you say, well, I guess I'm going to choose death. I'm going to choose martyrdom because nothing can come between you and the Lord Jesus. But as I said last week, even more than just physically dying, to take up your cross means that you are willing to endure shame for Christ's sake. Dying the death of crucifixion was meant to shame and mock the victim. So Jesus says if you want to follow him, you must be willing to be accounted as the scum of the earth, as the Apostle Paul says. You must be prepared to have everyone hate you and treat you horribly because you're his disciple. You have to be prepared to be poor and despised and maligned and have people assassinate your character, have people wish that you were dead, and have people maybe even kill you. And if you're going to be his disciple, you have to willingly embrace this shame should it come upon you. Being willing to lose it all, you love Jesus more, and you give everything up gladly for his sake. You take up your cross. And thirdly, Jesus says, if you're going to be his disciple, you must follow him. That is, you believe in him, first of all. You believe his words. You're not going to follow someone that you don't believe. right? You believe his words. You believe that he is who he says that he is, that he's the son of God, that he's the Messiah. He's God come in the flesh, and you believe his message, that he's the king of the kingdom of God who has come to bless people on God's behalf. You believe in his work, that he's come to live and die and be raised from the dead in order to save sinners from judgment and death and grant them entrance into the kingdom of God. And believing in him, you follow him in everything. His word is law for you. You recognize him as the only king and only lawgiver, and so you strive to obey him in everything. As I said last week, what he thinks, you think. What he says, you say. What he does, you do. Where he goes, you go. So as a disciple now, your life is meant to be an earnest desire to be like him as much as you can. doesn't mean you're going to do it perfectly, but your sincere desire of your life is to imitate him in everything, step by step, submitting to him and his will in everything. Jesus says that is what it means to be a Christian. That is what it means to be a disciple. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow him. Anything less than that is a lie and self-deception. If these three things don't categorize your life, then you are not one of his people. You are not his disciple. And again, I want to be clear. He's not saying that you must be perfectly doing these things all the time. There is grace. You are not saved by your own merits. You are not saved by your own works. But these three things are the major theme of every person's life. And they repent when they have not denied themselves. And they repent when they've not taken up their cross. And they repent when they've not followed him. But again, these three things are to be the theme of your life if you're a disciple. But the question is why? That's the question that we can now come to. Why would we want to do this? Why Why would we want to give up everything and suffer for Christ's sake? Why would you want to lay down your life and give up your own plans for your life? Why should you follow Jesus with a cost this high? And that brings us to our next heading. Jesus' argument for why you should accept his call. Which, real quick, how gracious is Christ to do this? He could have said, I'm the creator. Follow me because I said so. He could have. right? As creatures, we owe God obedience and whatsoever he is pleased to command of us. But Jesus here, sympathizing with our weakness and wanting to whet our appetite for discipleship, tells us why. He gives us, a good, he gives us reasons, multiple reasons. So we should praise him for his kindness here. But this is a four-part argument spanning verses 35 through 38. 
And in each of these verses, you'll notice they all start with the word for, don't they? F-O-R, for. Now, for is an explanatory word. Right? You open up a sentence with for whenever you're going to explain something. So in verses 35 through 38, Jesus is explaining why you should become his disciple. And his reasons are related, and they overlap, and they pile on top of each other to make a strong, strong argument and warning for us to consider for why we should follow him and be his disciple. So let's go ahead and start. Verse 35, 4, I'm explaining why you should be a disciple. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, before we really get into this verse, you need to know that Jesus is making a little bit of a play on words here. Right? He does that sometimes in the Gospels. The Greek word that we translate life is actually the same word later translated soul. And in each half of verse 35, there's two references to life. Right? If you read closely, forever, whoever would lose, save his life will lose it. It refers to his life. Okay? So depending on the context, the, the word can refer to spiritual or physical life. Again, later in verses 36 and 37, the word soul is the same word in Greek. So depending upon the context, depending upon the usage, it can mean physical life or spiritual life. And I, I think that life is being used in two ways, two different ways in his initial argument in verse 35. And I think we know that because Jesus says if you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose your life. But whoever loses their life will save it. They'll save their life. And just think with me logically here for a minute. If you lose your physical life, then you can't save your physical life, can you? It's already gone. You're dead. So this statement is nonsense unless Jesus is using the word life in a second way. Right? So the statement is unintelligible unless there is a second life Jesus is referring to. A different kind of life. A life after the physical life. A life that can be saved even if you lose the, the physical earthly life that you have, he's referring to an eternal life. So again, Jesus is referring to first, physical life, and second, to spiritual life in each section of verse 35. But just want to lay that out for you real quick, just to let you know I'm not making stuff up up here. Um, but in verse 34, Jesus said that if you want to be his disciple, you must give up life as you know it. You have to be willing even to die. You must... Lose your earthly life in order to be his disciple. And he means that, as I said earlier, figuratively and literally. You abandon everything that you are. You abandon all control. And you also must be willing to abandon your physical life too if you're called upon to do so in martyrdom. And here he's saying, but if you want to try to save your physical life, you will ultimately lose your spiritual life. That's what he's saying here. In verse 35, if you want to try to save your earthly life, you will lose the next one. You will lose your spiritual life. So here's the first reason that you must become a disciple. Because if you attempt to save your earthly life, you will forfeit the life to come. Now there's a temptation and natural desire in all of us to preserve our lives, isn't there? There's, there's a natural desire to live at ease and not rock the boat, right? And just go with the flow of what everyone's doing around you. There, there's a natural desire to avoid suffering, right? Pain hurts, doesn't it? Right? Pain hurts. Emotional pain hurts. Physical pain hurts. Shame and scorn is a deep pain. So we try to avoid those things as much as we can. It's a natural instinct. 
And more than that, there's definitely a desire to avoid physical death, right? We will go to extremes to make sure that we won't die, won't we? We will go to extremes if it'll guarantee us just a small amount of life more. People will do crazy things for five minutes of life. And because of this natural desire to avoid suffering, hardship, pain, and death, many people refuse the call of Christ. Again, in verse 34, Jesus says that in order to be his disciple, you must embrace the shame of the cross. You will be hated by the unbelieving world. You will be mocked. You will be shamed. You will suffer. We see this around us today, again, and in church history. But today, we can see faithful men and women harassed and maligned and mocked, fired from jobs, taken to court, treated horribly. Why? Because they are Jesus' disciples and because they are not ashamed of Christ. They're not ashamed to be named among Christ's people. But a great many people cannot be troubled with such things. A great many people would not dare to do anything that would bring an ounce of hardship upon themselves. So great is the idolatry of ease, comfort, and the opinions of men that many will reject the call of Christ so that they can live at peace in this world. So great is the idolatry of self and self-determination and self-sovereignty that many cannot conceive of laying themselves and their almighty will down at the feet of Jesus Christ and submitting to him as Lord. People can't conceive of that. But Jesus says here that those who seek to preserve their life will lose it. If you seek to retain control of your life, you will lose eternal life. If you seek to avoid pain and hardship, you will lose out on heaven. You'll lose your soul, your spiritual life, if you refuse Christ's call in order to keep your life here on earth easy and yours. This is really a warning, right? This is a warning about eternal destruction. Jesus is saying that you will forfeit everlasting life eternal life if you reject his call to discipleship. That is to say, you will suffer eternal death. And this isn't some reference to a false doctrine of annihilationism. Rather, it's a biblical way of referring to the eternal condemnation of God, the eternal punishment of God upon those who do not come to his Son. Jesus is doing nothing less than warning his hearers of the reality of hell for those who reject his call to follow him. He's warning them of hell. To preserve your life right now is to condemn yourself to eternal punishment because you have rejected the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. And this is what a lot of theologians call the paradox of discipleship. Whoever loses his life will actually gain it. That is to say, we gain by losing, right? Whoever would follow after Christ and embrace being hated by the world, whoever would come to Christ and lay down everything that they are and lose their lives to Christ, whoever would give up everything that they have and everything that they are to be his disciple will actually gain everything in the end. That's the paradox of discipleship. Losing everything in this life, the disciple will gain everything in the life to come. Jesus is saying that while it might cost much to follow him, the payoff is far greater than the cost. This should encourage you, Christian. 
the payoff is far greater than the cost. Whatever we lose in following him, we will gain back in the life to come. Whatever shame we receive, we will receive even more glory and praise from God. Whatever riches we lose will be incomparable to the the greatness of the presence of God. Whatever pain we suffer will not compare to the joy and pleasures of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying that while it is hard and costly, discipleship is worth it because there is a great reward to come. There is a great gain to come. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I get it all when I'm done here. That's why Paul would not be afraid of death, even martyrdom. That's why he could go to prison and be glad and rejoice and sing psalms in prison. Why? Because to die is gain. The worst thing they can do is end my life, and I get everything. Paul understood Jesus' words here. But I want you to take note of something really quickly. Jesus says that whoever loses his life for his sake and the gospels will save it. So, real quick, I just want to be plain. Jesus is not talking here about garden variety suffering. right? And he's not talking about hard providences. Those things come upon unbelievers. Rather, he's talking about suffering for being a Christian. And the scriptures are clear that we all will suffer something if we, if we seek to live a faithful life to Jesus. Especially take note here in verse 35 that Jesus says we suffer for the gospel's sake. That means the gospel is tied immediately to Christ. You cannot separate Jesus from his message. And therefore, you cannot separate discipleship from declaring Christ's message. Right? This is how you suffer for the gospel. You suffer because you are proclaiming the same things Jesus proclaimed. You suffer because you are, what is the gospel? It's a verbal declaration, right? You don't live the gospel. You may live out implications of the gospel, but the gospel is a message that you declare to somebody. It's a verbal proclamation of Christ and what he has done in order to save sinners. And this means that our following Jesus then is not a private affair. Why do I say that? You don't get killed over a private message, do you? You don't get killed over a private message. You don't suffer for silently following the teachings of Jesus. Jesus is making a reference here to active discipleship. This is openly following Christ and claiming him before the world. As we're going to see in verse 38, he talks about being ashamed of him. The kind of discipleship Jesus calls to is that we are are openly telling people that we are Jesus' disciple and that he is Lord and they need to repent and they need to follow him as well or they will perish. It's a proclamation of Christ and his work, an open public proclamation of the lordship of Christ, the person of Christ, the cross of Christ, all of those things in addition to your personal obedience and your private obedience to Christ. And it is for that that we will suffer. Make no mistake, I'm not being a fear monger. Just know this, you will suffer if you openly own Christ and proclaim his gospel. You will Go ahead and embrace that if you're going to be a disciple. But again, Jesus says that if we lose our lives, we will save them. We will gain something far greater in the life to come. But those who refuse to suffer for Christ will lose eternal life, and that leads us to Jesus' next words. So why should you accept this call to suffering and discipleship? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For many people, this is the most memorable part of this passage. 
And I think that's because the imagery is so striking and the words are so full of common sense. I know of everything in this passage, these two verses stick out to me the most. I quote them all the time to unbelievers when I'm talking to them about becoming Christians. Jesus is using economic language here. Again, like I said in the introduction, this is like a cost-benefit analysis. And I think it works something like this. If you decide to reject Jesus' call to discipleship, why? Why You're doing so because you don't want to lose your life. You're rejecting Jesus' call to discipleship because you want to keep your life as comfortable as possible, and you want to keep doing your will, and you want to keep a good reputation for yourself in the world. Those who reject the call of Christ are doing so because they are trying to keep their lives, because they're trying to gain their lives. But since the cost is so high for keeping your life, verse 35, Jesus says you will lose your eternal life, the natural question that comes then is what does it profit you to gain the whole world, let alone just your life, and yet lose your soul? People don't follow Jesus, as I just said, because they want to keep their lives in some way. But now here Jesus invites us all to take out a piece of paper and draw a vertical line down the middle and on one side write gain and on the other side write loss. And on the gain side, we can put everything we ever wanted, everything we ever hoped to keep in this life, every desire for everything in the world, every pleasure, every sin, every bit of human power, all the wealth in the world, all the land in the world, everything we ever wanted on the gain side. And on the loss side, you put three words, my eternal soul. And then Jesus invites us to weigh the two sides and ask ourselves, is it actually gain to get everything in this world and yet lose eternal life? Is it worth it to gain the world and then go to hell when I die? Jesus is saying that if you put the entire world and all that it has to offer you on one side of the scale and then put your eternal soul, your eternal destiny on the other side of the scale, that your soul will weigh heavier. It's worth more. The whole world is as a grain of sand on the scale of eternity. To gain the world and yet lose your physical life isn't a good deal. <laughs> right, you guys know that. If I told you, I'll give you everything that you ever wanted, but you'll die in a year, would you, would you take my offer? I'll give you everything you could ever ask for, and you'll die within the next year. Are you going to take me up? No. I'm not going to do that. Right? I mean, unless you're a total fool, you're terminally ill anyway, right? But in ordinary circumstances, you would be an idiot, right? respectfully, <laughs> right? You'd be an idiot to do that. You, you would count it as a total loss to get everything you ever wanted. Why? Because it just cost you your life. How much more of a loss is it to lose your eternal soul? That's Jesus' point here. How much, of a, how much more of a loss is it to die and then be cast into the eternal fires of hell to suffer under the wrath of God? What profit is it to have all the fame, power, pleasure, a long life, money, sex, whatever it is, and yet lose your soul when everything's said and done? What does it profit you? In the final analysis, did you actually gain anything? No. You actually lost it all. You forfeited your own soul. You forfeited eternal life with God and instead 
catch this, you exchanged it for eternal damnation so that you could have maybe 80 years of sinful pleasure and self-sovereignty on the earth. What profit is it to gain the approval of the world and never have to endure shame or suffering, only later to be condemned by God and endure eternal shame and suffering? What is the gain there? And what's most sad, as I reflected upon these two verses this past week, what's most sad to me is that most people reject Jesus' call to discipleship and trade their souls, but they don't even get the world. They don't even get the world. The vast majority of people lose their souls for much less. They trade their soul for trinkets. Like, let's be real for a minute, right? Y'all live in Scioto County. You're not going to get the world. I mean, I've lived here my whole life, right? I'm white trash too. It's cool. You're not going to gain the world. Maybe you're willing to lose your soul for fornication. I have seen so many people commit apostasy over the sin of fornication. And their significant other is not even good looking. That might be a mean joke, but it's true. You get my point. Maybe you're willing to sell your soul for fornication, but know this, your good looks will run out. You won't be a stud forever and you won't be a beauty for long. There's a shelf life to the sin of fornication. You're going to trade your soul for that? It's got a shelf life. You don't see many 60-year-olds walking around with 20-year-olds, do you? It's got a shelf life to it. Maybe you're willing to lose your soul for greed. You don't want to follow Jesus because there isn't much to financially gain from it, but there is a whole lot to lose. It could cost you your job. But just know this. You're not going to attain Bill Gates' status money. You're not. You're probably going to die average and modest like the rest of us. Or maybe you're just willing to lose your soul over your own will because you want to do what you want to do. And nobody, not even Jesus Christ himself, is going to tell you what to do. But you're not going to do anything that interesting with your life anyway. You're not. You're going to be nameless a generation after you're dead and no one's going to remember you. But maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe I'm just being a mean old Baptist up here who's just trying to crush your dreams. Maybe I'm wrong, and maybe you will get everything. Maybe you will actually gain everything you ever wanted by rejecting Jesus. But tell me this, you defiant sinner. What is it worth? What good is it to you when you're dead? What, is it, what good is it to you when you're in hell? What, was it a good trade then? Was your stubbornness worth it? Did you make a wise trade? That's the point of these two verses. Jesus says your soul is priceless. It's not worth it. Eternal life is invaluable and infinitely better than anything in this world. But once it's lost, there is no buying it back. What can a man give in return for his soul? Literally, what is the counter price for your soul once you've sold it? There's nothing. There's no price you can give. Read Psalm 47. There's, I believe, no, 49. There's no price you can give. It's discipleship with Christ as Lord or complete and utter loss for eternity. Jesus says, those are your options. Weigh them. And now we come to the final part of Jesus' argument for why you should be his disciple. Verse 38. 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of him, and let me tease that out for a minute. That is, whoever denies a connection with him. This is the opposite of acknowledging him before the world. It's doing what Peter did, right? It's denying him instead of denying yourself. To be ashamed of Jesus is to not confess him. This is whoever does not become his disciple. To deny his person, to deny his work, it's to deny his words and his message, it's to deny him. Those who are ashamed of him, those who refuse his call to discipleship, those who refuse to suffer for his sake, of them he will be ashamed. And he pushes home the urgency of discipleship by saying, in this adulterous and sinful generation. If you're ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation, note this, he's saying that to the crowd that's gathered before him in the first century. He's telling them, if you're ashamed of me in this life, right now, if you will not be my disciple in this world, in this generation, then I will deny you in return later. That speaks to every generation that, can't, that comes after that one as well. The choice must be made now by every person in the generation that you are living in right now. This isn't a game. This is deadly serious. The choice must be made today. It must be made in this life. Will you become his disciple? And the choice must be made, Jesus says, because there is coming a day of reckoning for all who did not accept his call. Jesus says here, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He's saying that he, the Son of Man, remember that's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. He, the Son of Man, who will receive his kingdom and will receive power and dominion and glory, will one day come, as we confess often, in glory and in judgment. The parallel passage in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, states it actually a little bit more clearly than Mark does. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus is talking about his second coming when he comes to judge all the world and all who have walked upon it. He is going to come again in glory and in judgment against all who did not follow him, and he will repay each one according to their works. Whether or not that person belonged to him, whether or not that person followed him. Jesus is telling all who heard him, or for us, who read these words, that he's going to judge, that he will receive his kingdom, and then he will one day return. And when he returns, he will not return as a suffering servant. He will not return as a Messiah to be crucified, or a rabbi to reject his call to discipleship, but rather he will return as a king to utterly ruin all those who did not enter his kingdom by accepting his call. All who hear him must then recognize the king and accept his terms of amnesty while he is still offering them. And they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. Anything less than that will result in him being ashamed of them and rejecting them forever as they rejected him. Denying them forever as they denied him in their life. John Piper put it this way. What's the opposite of being ashamed of somebody? 
Being proud of them, admiring them, not being embarrassed to be seen with them, loving to be identified with them. So Jesus is saying, if you are embarrassed by me and the price that I paid for you, and he's not referring to lapses of courage when you don't share your faith, but a settled state of your heart toward him. If you're not proud of me, and you don't cherish me and what I did for you, if you want to put yourself with the goats, that is unbelievers, that value their reputation in the goat herd more than they value me, then that's the way I will view you when I come. I will be ashamed of you, and you will perish with the people who considered me an embarrassment. Matthew Henry said this, They shall not share with him in his glory then, when he comes, that were, will not, that were not willing to share with him in his disgrace now. If we would share in the glory of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we must identify with him now and be willing to suffer for his sake. Anything less will result in our eternal shame when he comes. But consider here for a moment the opposite thing that is implied. And this is really encouraging to me. It's brought a tear to my eye while I was studying. I'm pretty emotional. Jesus is going to be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him. He will judge them. He will deny knowing them. He will cut them off from himself and deny them eternal life and draw back from them. And they will forever be cast away from the glory of his presence. But the opposite is true as well. The opposite is true as well. On that great day, he will receive those who were his disciples. He says he'll be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him, but those who were openly acknowledging him as Lord, who are openly following him as disciples, who were not ashamed of him, he will not be ashamed of them. He will receive them. He will own them before his Father. He will confess them as they confessed him. The king of the kingdom of God, the Son of Man, will publicly admit that his disciples indeed belong to him, and he will bring them into eternal blessedness at his side in his kingdom. When he comes in judgment, he will not deny them. Instead, he will say, I know them. They are mine, and I love them, and they love me. These are my beloved ones, my disciples who followed me everywhere, no matter what it cost them. I'm not ashamed of them. These are the ones who loved me. These are my people. That's what Jesus is going to say over his disciples at his coming. These are mine, and he's going to own them before the world. Imagine that. The Son of God, Christian, is going to own you. He'll declare that you belong to him and he will not be ashamed. So know this, just a quick piece of application. I want you to remember that as life gets increasingly hard for us, unless God grants revival to this country, remember that as your life gets harder for being a disciple. He's going to own you publicly someday. Remember that. You're going to need to know that. At some point, you're going to need to know that so that you won't be ashamed of him. But now we come to our third and final heading. And this is reassurance to disciples that they have made the right choice. And this verse seems kind of strange. Verse 1, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, this may seem a little bit out of place. It may seem a little bit strange to us. But I think that when we understand this verse rightly, there is a lot um, of comfort to the disciple in, in chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus says that there were some standing there that day in the crowd 
among his disciples who would not die. That is, they would not taste death. They won't die until they see something. So some of them are going to live to behold something. Jesus said that they will see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, some people will say well, that's a reference to the second coming, but it can't be. Because Jesus said some of the people who are alive right now in 33 AD are going to see something before they die. No one is 2,000 years old. Okay, just write that down if you were just curious. No one's ever lived that long. Okay? So that's not a reference to Jesus' second coming. He says the kingdom of God will come in power, and they will see it after it has come in power. Now what is the kingdom of God? What's the reign of God through his chosen king, Jesus? When did the kingdom of God begin? Back in Mark 1.15, Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. In Matthew 12.28, Jesus said to the, or to the Pharisees who were accusing him of being in league with Satan, he said, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I think we would all agree Jesus cast out demons by the Spirit of God. So that means the kingdom of God had come in Jesus' first coming. Jesus says that himself in multiple places. But here Jesus says they're going to see the kingdom after it has come with power. So not that it's not come yet, but they're going to see a powerful manifestation of the kingdom. So this is something in the future that some who are living at, that, at this moment when Jesus is speaking are going to see. So... Oh, sorry, and one more thing. Jesus in Matthew 16, 28, the parallel passage, says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Or, and again, I think the sense there is coming into his kingdom. They're going to see something that gives them proof that Jesus, the Son of Man, has begun to reign as king over the kingdom that was prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. Right? That Jesus is exercising sovereign rule at the right hand of God. He says, you're going to see that. That the kingdom of God has come with power, right? And they're going to see it. That means there's going to be a visible manifestation, a visible proof that they are going to be aware of that Christ is seated on his throne and that the kingdom of God has come in power. There's going to be a visible proof that Jesus has taken the throne in his kingdom. So again, I know I'm laboring the point. I just want you to see this. There's going to be a future open and powerful display of God's rule through Jesus Christ that testifies that Jesus is king of the kingdom of God. And some of Jesus' disciples that day are going to be around to see it happen. So when do those things happen? Well, they had to happen within the lives of the people who were standing there. They had to happen within the first century. And I think that I have a pretty good idea of what kind of stuff Jesus was referring to whenever you look at the things that happened later in biblical history. Romans chapter 1 says that in Jesus' resurrection, he was declared to be the Son of God in power when he was raised from the dead by the Spirit of God. At his ascension, I think we see a manifestation of Jesus' kingdom coming in power at his ascension. The Apostle Peter declared in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus had taken David's throne over the kingdom of God when he ascended into heaven. And he quotes Psalm 110 verse 1, God's favorite Bible verse. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He says Jesus is reigning over the kingdom of God even now at his ascension. And they witnessed his ascension just as they witnessed his resurrection. We see Jesus acting again as king in a visible manifestation when he poured out the promised Holy Spirit as a gift to his people at Pentecost 
in Acts chapter 2. We see Jesus acting as king yet again when he began to increase his church rapidly through the preaching of the apostles. 3,000 in one day. We see crazy numbers like that in the book of Acts. What does Psalm 110 verse 3 say? Christ gets enthroned, and then your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Ah, a powerful rule as Christ is seated in heaven and people begin to visibly become Christians. They're flocking into the kingdom. We see him reigning as king in that way. And then finally, we see within the first century, Jesus acting as king when he judged the Jews in Jerusalem who rejected him and had him crucified. Read the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is almost exclusively about Jesus prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem because they were going to reject him. Not only that, but in Mark chapter 14, verse 62, Jesus says to the high priest, You, high priest, will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He told the high priest, You're going to see me in power coming in judgment. It's not a reference to the second coming. It's a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So taking all those things together, all these king, the judgment of Christ, increasing his kingdom through the preaching of the, the apostles, pouring out his spirit, his ascension, his resurrection. Indeed, some standing there with Jesus that day did live to see Jesus ruling as king, didn't they? They saw visible, powerful manifestations that Jesus was working supernaturally from heaven and ruling over his kingdom. But why would Jesus add this at the end of his call to discipleship? Right? What does that have to do with everything else that I've preached so far tonight? I think that this verse is meant to be proof of what Jesus said in verse 38. It's meant to be proof that he will indeed come again in glory and in judgment. It's meant to be proof that he really is the son of man. And that he really has come into his kingdom. That he really is the judge. That his words really are true. That he's speaking here. These warnings. These reasons for why you need to be his disciple. Verse 1 is meant to be the proof that his words are true. And we need to heed them. Jesus added this at the end of his discourse. So that his disciples would be able to know for certain that he is the son of man. Who will come again. You could know for an absolute fact that what he's saying here is true and right and good when you see his kingdom after it has come in power. So you can know that he is king, he is Lord, he is Christ. He is the Son of God who is worthy to be followed when you see these things. And not only that, but you can rest assured as a disciple that you will be received into glory because he is indeed the king of the kingdom. So as you suffer for being a disciple, Jesus is saying to the people standing there, as you will suffer later for being mine, when you see these things, I want you to be encouraged to continue on as my disciple because I am the king and I will come again. It's meant to be a proof and an encouragement to them. But it also ends up being a proof and encouragement for us, doesn't it? Because we can look back and say all those things happen. That means that Jesus is the king. He is ruling his words are true. So again, when we look at the biblical record, we see that he indeed has come in power. And even two millennia later, we know that Jesus is king. And since he made good on his promise in verse 1, we know that he's going to make good on his promise in verse 38, that he's going to come in glory and in judgment. And he'll be ashamed of those who were ashamed of him. And that means that we must respond to his call of discipleship with a wholehearted yes.
So as we near the end of this sermon, I want to ask you the same question that I asked last week. Are you a disciple? Are you a disciple? If you aren't, you must understand that you will lose your soul. You will lose your eternal life, and you will receive eternal shame and punishment under the wrath of the Lamb. Are you a disciple? If you're not, then you are vainly trying to save your life, and you may save your life in this world. You may keep a very comfortable, selfish, rebellious, world-approving, easy life now, but you will lose everything later. You should know that. If you don't heed the master's call and become a disciple, you are a fool. And I love you enough to tell you that. You're a fool because you're going to lose everything. But even now, there's hope for you. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. Respond to his call and receive eternal life. Receive a place in his kingdom that he's purchased for you. And receive a kingdom that will stand forever. The world is dross, but Jesus is offering you gold. Come to him. But one final thing, and I'm speaking to disciples now, uh, to my dear brothers and sisters. If you're weary in your following after Christ, because it's easy to, to happen, isn't it? You get tired as you follow Jesus. Take heart in this passage. The words of our Lord here remind us of some glorious truths that are going to keep your feet moving and your heart warm as you follow him. So remember these things, Christian. You will be publicly owned by Christ someday. He will confess before his Father and the world that you belong to him. The persecutors and enemies of Christ will be destroyed. Jesus, though hated now, will come in glory. Eternal life is yours through Christ Jesus our Lord. And whatever you lose now cannot be compared to what you will receive. If you lose your life, you will find it. So let the truths of this text encourage you to stand firm as a disciple of Christ, even when persecution, shame, hatred, and loss comes. Because as much as I hate to say it, it is coming. Unless something seriously changes in our culture, it's coming. And you need to remember these things, or you will fall. It is by believing in the promises of God that we will persevere. We must remember these things. So believe. Look back on church history and see that he is king. And keep following him as a disciple. Because when all is said and done, only his kingdom shall remain. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you for your word. That, that you're just honest with us. That you tell us how things are going to be. You, you warn us, you don't, you don't promise us a bed of roses, but rather you tell us that the world is a thorn. Help us to follow you. Help us to believe that, Lord Jesus, help us to follow you and believe that your promises are true. And that it's better to have you than to have the world. Forgive us, God, for all the times where we have not believed that. For all the times where we've chosen the world over you. Grant us repentance. Help us to believe your promises and be encouraged. And Lord, if there's anyone in here who does not yet trust in Christ, I pray that you would open their hearts to see the truth here, that they might 
repent and follow after Christ. Have mercy upon us and sustain us, holy God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.